Yle Podcast. This podcast series is based on my experiences while making the documentary film Who Was Felix Kirsten? The film is about Heinrich Himmler's mysterious personal doctor and the revelations that followed. The reason for making this podcast is that after finishing the documentary, well, suffice it to say that the Felix Kirsten story never really went away. Episode 2. The House of Cards. Life can toy with us in many unexpected ways. I was given a chance to make a film about possibly the most interesting and forgotten heroes of World War II. Very few had ever heard of him. I met Arno Kersten, Felix's son, and Felix's wife Imgard, who was rather old then but still going strong. Und sein Vater They were all delighted that finally someone is making a film about Felix, and that the filmmaker happened to be a Finn was a big bonus. After all, Felix was a Finn as well. But the story started to become controversial right from the start. While I was interviewing Irmgard Kirsten and her son Arno, and my father came, but he came to Berlin. He, he was... They were more or less repeating the same old story that I had already gleaned from books. At the same time, my researcher, Sudna Salstedt, made his own findings in the Finnish National Archive. In the original story, told by Felix Kersten himself, he had fought in the Finnish Civil War, and because of his heroics as an officer, he had been given Finnish citizenship. However, Sudna found out that Felix Kersten was actually sacked from the Finnish army because he had been in Estonia circulating business cards and introducing himself as a duke. In addition, he had also been found to be forging his military record in Estonia, where he claimed to have earlier been a lieutenant. The most interesting finding was that he was a German citizen. That was something Arno, Felix's son, had never known. That he was in the Finnish army, that we knew, of course. I mean, that we knew all the time. That he talked a lot about. But the first part, being in a German army, that has never, he never told us. You were the producer of the film we were making. So, do you remember anything when uh, we were showing, uh, for example, Arnold and those documents we found from the Finnish archives about his father, who had forged those uh, some of the documents and also been uh, delivering those visit cards where he was uh, introducing himself as a duke? Yeah, I do remember that he was slightly taken aback and surprised, but he was kind of hiding the surprise quite well, not giving it a lot of significance, which is natural because he's the son. And of course, throughout his life, since he was a little boy, he's kind of uh, created this hero mythology about his father. There was more to come, and all that started to gather deeper meaning, revealed much later. Well, Arno was a very likable Gentleman was quite quite uh, quite clear from the beginning that he had swallowed the standard story from his father head and tail since he was a child. I don't think there was any latitude emotionally to investigate anything that didn't fit his reality. That reality just happened to be a very subjective one. He's a very intelligent guy and well educated. And um, 
very Swedish in terms of his character, very, very straight, very vertical. So it was interesting to listen to his version of his father because it was basically a mirror picture of what the father had written in his book. But of course, we had to do our own investigation. Actually, in 1922, the Estonians had asked the Finnish military headquarters to find out who that man was who had been soliciting a certificate for his service as an officer in the Polkian Poyat Regiment because they were not able to find a match with that name. When interrogated in Finland in 1922, Felix Kersten admitted that he had been serving in the Polkian Poyat Regiment, drawing a lieutenant's salary, yet wearing a German warrant officer's uniform. Anyway, the authorities in Finland decided to strip Felix Kersten of his officer's rank, and his name was also deleted from the registry of officers. The reason? Improper behavior for a Finnish officer. The rising evidence coming to the documentary film I was making started to become more challenging all the time. In the beginning of his career, this strange masseur for one of the most notorious Nazi leaders seemed to have been busy manufacturing copious forged documents. How could I trust anything I read from him? The next document was from Berlin, 1923. A photograph of a good-looking young man wearing nice clothes and really expensive leather boots and holding a horsewhip. The German film porter records that he had played one of the main roles in a movie entitled Geknechtete Seelen, The Enslaved Souls, or something similar. The movie was forbidden for children, which doesn't necessarily mean that it was a so-called adult film. It could have also been scary or depicting horror as well. Aus diesem Dokument geht hervor, dass er sich auch als Filmregisseur betätigt hat. In 1924. A year later, Felix Kersten had been introducing himself as a film director, Felix Fellar Kersten, signing an agreement with a Finnish scriptwriter. One year later, he becomes a masseur, running a successful practice in Berlin. At that time, another strange character enters the picture. Elizabeth Lubin. Elizabeth Lubin was a very, a very important lady in my father's life. In Holland, she was always in Holland, uh, the lady behind him when he was unmarried, organizing the patients, the time schedules. The, and when it was time for official meetings, she was the lady he went with. She was writing down. An older woman who was at Felix Kersten's beck and call until the end of his life but who was neither his lover nor his wife. The famous French author, Joseph Kessel, of Belle de Jour's fame, relates that alleged history in his Kirsten biography, The Man with Miraculous Hands. But let's come to Elizabeth Lubin later. Anyhow, strangely enough, this man was suddenly treating powerful German industrialists and bankers. In 1928, the Dutch queen Wilhelmina invited him to Holland to treat her husband, Prince Heinrich. Something in Kersten's stories always carried a kernel of truth. But somehow, most of it seemed to just be a fantastic tale peppered by certain details and facts. Well, I think one possible thing to look at is the fact that he was always very, very closely aligned with top 
industrial and political elites he knew how to navigate in these circumstances and it just happened that Sweden was almost like a state of Germany at the time I mean it seemed like an independent nation but when you look at the top industrial and political elite it was very closely aligned with Germany exactly and what do you remember about our visiting good Hartswald and uh meeting with the Friedrich Klingerberg who was the one of the prisoners who had been working on the farm. Gut Hartswalde was Kersten's estate, or more correctly, an estate, located some 60 kilometers from Berlin. We visited there with our crew. There were rumors that the estate was Himmler's present to Kersten, but Kersten claims in his memoirs that he had bought it with money he had earned by treating those wealthy industrialists and royals. Although Arno gave me a contradictory document showing that Felix Kirsten had gotten the money, 30,000 gilder, from his father in Dorpat. Well, to be honest, Gutharzwald was kind of a surprise that you have this, uh, let's say, supposedly Finnish masseur living in diplomatic, uh, isolated, rather luxurious real estate of Berlin. Not only that, you would have a massive bunker next to, next to the main house. You would also have other military installations, bunkers and defense systems built around the perimeter. So obviously there was more going on there than meets the eye. Yeah. At the time, we weren't sure exactly what it was, but it, it was alarming enough to make you sweat and be completely white in your face. <laughs> so, uh, but also you were quite surprised when the Klingerberg was telling about uh, there was a smaller bunker on the yard of the Good Harshwald, and which the Russians found when they arrived. Uh, do you recall that uh, moment? When he was telling about uh, that uh, the Russians found the bunker, and they they removed what was inside. Yeah. Und auch diesen Bunker, den sie da gefunden haben, nicht? Ich weiß ja nicht, was da drin war. Ich, ich war ja nicht bei allen Räumen dabei. Aber da werden die wahrscheinlich ihre ganzen Wertsachen alles drin gehabt haben, nicht? Da sind zwei volle Lastwagen haben sie rausgeholt aus dem Bunker. Die Russen. Die Russen. And we don't know what was inside, but basically we were guessing it could be documents or, uh, for example, gold. Or some art, whatever. Any kind of valuables, which kind of fits, fits in with the larger framework of uh, Kirsten's character. He was shielding his future. But do you also recall the moment when Klingeberg told that one of the white buses uh, also came to Gut Hartswald on that night when the other buses were busy uh, in uh, Ravensbrück camp? Yeah, I would say that this moment was a very surprising moment because we didn't know what those white buses were supposed to be doing in Gut Hartswald. I was puzzled. How could I end my film How could I know what was true and what was not? By now, most of the historians I encountered seemed to agree that Kerstin was mostly an untrustworthy source, 
as corroborated by Dutch professor Louis de Jong. Uh, I came involved with Felix Kirsten because uh, a few years after the war, in 47 or 48, the Dutch government uh, set up a commission of inquiry and they produced a report, but the report was worthless in my eyes. But at the time, the Netherlands government trusted the report and the result was that they awarded a very high decoration to Kirsten. Hugh Trevor Roper said about Kirsten that he was just a fly on a wheel, but he thought that he was running the wheel. And the main author of it was Professor Posthumus, who was a, a distinguished Dutch economic historian of the 17th century. I read this documentation and I realized that there were depths below depths at every point. As well as leading Holocaust researcher, Professor Yehuda Bauer of Israel. The context in which this was done is a context of webs of lies by everyone. So that one cannot really um, fault this man who uh, invented these stories uh, from a subjective point of view. Something in Kirsten's stories always carried a kernel of truth. But somehow, most of it seemed to just be a fantastic tale peppered by certain details and facts. I think there's one thing you, that is that's important to say, that Kirsten's published book in America was not under his uh, authorization. Yes, authorization. Yes, you know who the, the, the ghostwriter was in, in his German uh, publication? Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't write it himself. He made notes in his diary, and then somebody else wrote it. That was Leo Hausleiter, mm-hmm. and he was an uh, SS Oberführer. I have it here, you know, this is the one. Well, for me, What's interesting about the Felix Kersten story is that obviously whoever he was in actual fact, whether he was in fact a simple soldier from the front by the name of Felix Kersten or someone who whoever we're dealing with here is number one, most likely a very talented and brilliant individual. He is very adaptive to his environment. He can uh, navigate through social circumstances and top levels of the society, both military, political, and industrial, in wartime. So we're talking about a top-caliber type of person. Also, someone who's able to take multiple identities at the same time and represent several narratives about himself at the same time. So, yes, it's fascinating, and it also most likely means that he was dealing with at least one uh, intelligence operation, whether it was on the Allied side or SS side, most likely he was dealing with both. He does a brilliant reversal of completely remanufacturing his story and in record time writes a book about himself which turns him into a hero. I think this story about survival by a very, very adaptive person to his circumstances by someone who is very good with storytelling. I think it is clear uh, that Kasten uh, did exercise a great influence over Himmler. Uh, Himmler suffered from these stomach cramps, which were apparently very violent. But the most problematic forgery was yet to come, and that was truly big big and terrifying. At that moment, I felt that now I was probably stepping on two big toes.
Mr. Dixon was a man in Parliament, but he, he had also connections with the court. He was with the court at Kammerherre. So Kirsten went to him and showed him, showed him the letter in 53 when he wanted to get the decoration. And Dixon said, of course, it is, it is a forgery and, and, and must be a forgery. The podcast is directed and realized by Arto Koskinen. Written by Arto Koskinen and John Bernstein. The voiceover of Arto Koskinen is dramatized by Trent Pansy. Sound design and music is made by Kimmo Vantinen.